Welcome back to the Second Story Podcast. I'd like to begin this episode with a special thanks to our Kickstarter donors. With your help, we were able to make a seamless transition into our new space, and we are truly indebted to you. And with that in mind, here's a very special episode of the podcast. In 2016, we were asked to partake in the first Chicago Podcast Festival. Veteran storytellers Koya Paz and Latanya Lane performed, and following the performances is a nuts and bolts conversation with the both of them and our artistic director, Amanda Delheimer Diamond. Thanks again, Kickstarter donors. We couldn't have done it without you. Hi, everybody. How are you? Good, I hope. My name is Amanda Delheimer Diamond. I am the artistic director of Second Story, and it is my pleasure to be your MC for our segment tonight. Uh, we are so excited to be here at a live recording of our podcast. As James mentioned, we have live performances all around the city of Chicago, and normally our podcast is recordings of those shows to push them further out into the world. But tonight, we're here for you to record it live. Um, our mission is about community building and storytelling. We always hope that we tell the first story and it inspires something in you so that you tell the second story to your friend or the friendly stranger that you're sitting with or your neighbor or somebody that you run into on the street. But it's really about the fact that communities are what, or stories are what bind us together. So we have two stories for you tonight, and then we'll have a short little conversation at the end with the artists who are sharing with you. And I'm going to invite our first storyteller to the stage. Uh, please welcome to the microphone the lovely and talented Koya Paz. Let's go. I told you to punch the bag, not tap the bag. What is this, a dance? I catch a glimpse of myself in the mirror. My hair is sticking straight up. My face is red and sweaty and there's snot dripping down my nose. I try to wipe it off, but my gloves are too slippery to do much but redirect it to my cheek. Pass, my instructor barks. What is this, stand around time? Get moving. My muscles hurt, my knee hurts. I rally, lifting my shaking arms to my face. Guard up, I punch the bag hard and again. Thud, 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 thud. Time for a kick. Time for two kicks. Time for a burpee. Time for 20 burpees. I feel something in my knee give a searing pain. Time for a sit-up. It's called a sit-up, not a sit-there. My knee is killing me, but I look around. Everyone is back up on the bag, getting in the combo. Jab, hook, roundhouse, uppercut. I can do this. I lean into the pain, push through as hard as I can. Jab, hook, uppercut, jab, hook, uppercut, jab, hook, uppercut, jab, hook, uppercut. Afterwards, my physical therapist asks, are you a professional athlete? <laughs> I'm obviously not, so she wants to know why I kept kickboxing for two weeks after I knew I had hurt my knee. I had to, I say. My program is very demanding. Mind over matter. She smiles patiently. That's not how bodies work. How long before I can go back to the gym, I ask? In a week or two, she says. We can talk about getting on a stationary bike. I feel a familiar swamp royal inside me. It is very important I get back into it as soon as I can, I say, fighting back a panic. What made you take up kickboxing, she asks. Outside me says, my 40th birthday. Inside me says, I wanted a new me. 
The thing is, I was very excited to turn 40. It seemed the kind of major milestone that called for a fabulous party, and I was ready. I want a mariachi band, I told my partner, and a taco truck, and donuts, no, cupcakes, no, donuts, no, donuts and cupcakes. I imagined how our backyard garden would look filled with all of my favorite friends dancing and laughing under strings of light like something out of a magazine. But what would make this 40th birthday truly magical was that I was finally and miraculously pregnant with a much wanted second child at almost 40. I am not a fertile person. It took 17 tries to make my daughter, and attempts to get pregnant again had been a many years long slog of tests and surgeries and procedures and shots and hormones, and visit after visit to my fertility clinic, a depressing place where every patient looked sad and where some doctor or nurse would invariably remind me that my ovaries were aging by the minute. I had gotten used to taking pregnancy tests that invariably turned out negative, so I was shocked when at the age of 39, just a few weeks before I turned 40, I got a big, fat positive. My household erupted into jubilation. My daughter and I danced around the living room. I'm gonna have a baby, you're gonna have a baby. I'm gonna be a sister, you're gonna be a sister. I would wake up in the morning and channel love to this new life, me and my uterus, meditating. I swear, I could feel it glow. I thought about my party, how I would hide my pregnancy with fruity mocktails, try to stay cool, not tell too many people, maybe just my sisters and a few close friends. I'm pregnant. I'm pregnant. When my doctor called, I knew it wasn't good news. I could tell by the tone in her voice, by the careful way she explained the numbers that weren't adding up, a complicated hormonal math I didn't really understand. She told me she wanted me to come in for another ultrasound to determine next steps. Is there any chance, I asked, that everything is going to be okay? This isn't a normal pregnancy, she answered, but that could change, right? I insisted, it could get better. She paused, no. This pregnancy will not result in a viable birth. The ultrasound wasn't to see if the fetus was still growing. It was to find out whether it was likely to abort on its own or if they would have to induce. In short, a miscarriage. She wanted to know if I could come in right away the next day. Okay, I said. Can I come in the morning? I'm, um, I'm having a party in the afternoon. I hung up the phone and lay on my bed my hand on my belly, trying to make myself believe that the glow I was sure I felt was just my imagination. Why is mama sad, my daughter asked my partner, whose own vo voice broke as she said, the baby didn't grow. I'm not gonna be a sister, my daughter asked. No, honey, I said, pulling her into a snuggle, not this time. What did you do to make it go away, she asked. It was a question I would ask myself again and again for weeks. What could I do? What did I do? Though I knew the answer, a stupid answer, useless answer, answer unhelpful answer, nothing. Sometimes bodies just don't do what we want them to. The morning of my 40th birthday, I checked into my doctor's office. My partner and I held hands as we watched the doctor search for the baby on the ultrasound monitor. 
I scrutinize the screen, an unfamiliar terrain of gray blobs trying to make out the contours of my own body. Are you sure, I said again, that this isn't going to turn out okay? Is it possible, like even the slightest bit of possible? No, she said firmly, explaining more things I didn't understand. Do you have any questions? I thought about all of the questions I had, all of the whys and what ifs, and finally answered yes. Um, I don't want to sound like an alcoholic, but can I drink? Is it safe for the, is it okay? We're having a party, my partner interjected, for her birthday. Oh, of course, my doctor said, then added awkwardly, happy birthday. That night, a mariachi band played under the garden lights as my friends swirled around me, drunk and spirited. 40 is gonna be great. I feigned cheer, woohoo, 40, nursing a beer that made my stomach lurch from guilt or hormones, I don't know. I felt like I was watching someone else's life, the outside me a puppet, animated, hitting all the happy notes. Hello, oh thank you, oh fabulous. Inside, I curled into myself, imagining my uterus as a black hole, a spreading mold, a betrayal. I alternated between sorrow and a fury that had no target but bad luck, human biology, the simple fact of life that 20% of pregnancies end in miscarriage. But in the absence of someone to blame, I blamed myself, my stupid body, useless body. I spent the next few days waiting for the miscarriage, shuttling myself back and forth to the doctor for blood tests and ultrasounds. We'll give it another week, my doctor said to see if it resolves naturally. Inside me rolled her eyes bitterly. Outside me smiled and nodded. When the miscarriage finally came, I was teaching a class. It felt like a bad period, cramps upon cramps and thick clots of blood. I excused myself to the bathroom and locked myself in a stall, hastily putting on a pad. The toilet auto-flushed as I sat there, splashing water an undignified end to this much-wanted thing. Inside me churned with a swamp feeling. Outside me went back to class, smiling. Inside me folded into a thin line, taut and quiet. Outside me was complacent and understanding. These things happen. I'm fine. It was pretty early. Inside me wanted to break something, hit something, kick something. Inside me wanted the impossible, a different body, a different me. I was driving down Kedzie when I noticed a building on the corner, unobtrusive except for a big sign, Farrell's Extreme Body Shaping. I looked it up. It was a kickboxing gym with a website full of transformation photos, testimonials all echoing the same idea. I've changed. I am truly not the person I was before. Perfect, I thought. Sign me up. Farrell's was red-walled and no frills, mats and punching bags, and a giant American flag hanging on the far end. It was everything I always thought I would hate and loved instead. None of the false calm of my fertility clinic, none of the fake cheer I offered my friends and family, just sweat and bruised feet and the feeling of a fist hitting a firm surface over and over again, brutal. One time, my instructor popped me in the face as he passed by. That'll teach you to keep your guard up. 
Outside me was outraged. Inside me was thrilled. A punch felt real, tangible, the kind of thing you could shake off and keep going. And that's what I did, throwing myself into it six days a week at 6 a.m., week after week after week. How are you feeling about things, my best friend asked, concerned. I knew she was asking about the miscarriage, but I talked about kickboxing instead. I feel great, very strong. And then the tear, the ripping in my knee, an abrupt stop, a failure, again, a failure. What do you think about water aerobics, my physical therapist asks. That's fun. Her office smells like baby powder, and she, she plays soft instrumental music while she moves my leg up and down, back and forth. I fight back disappointed tears. I just really like kickboxing, I say. Mm. She tells me I've been compensating in an unhealthy way. I know she is talking about the relationship between my glutes and my hamstrings, but it feels like she is talking about it all. I don't know what else to do, I say. I don't know how to make it work. She's so kind. I know, she says. You have been doing what you can, but now we have to take the time to learn to do something different, to heal. Okay, I say inside me and outside me equally skeptical. I think about punches, kicks, sweat, blood, clot, ultrasounds, and I ease myself into a gentle bridge. Activate your core, she says, and I clench tight, holding everything, holding it all. Relax, she says. Breathe, she says. Your body is just a body. Give it time, take it slow. Outside me agrees with a nod and a smile. Inside me flails, kicking furiously, punching into air. I meet myself in the murky middle, hold her words like a mantra or a curse. Give it time, give it time, give it All right, so if we were at a traditional second story performance, there'd be like 10 or 15 minutes now when we'd play music and you'd be at a bar or a restaurant, so you'd be eating and drinking and we'd invite you to talk to your friends and tell stories that were inspired by the one that you just heard. But because we only have 45 minutes, we're going to tell you another story. Uh, one thing I do want to tell you is that all of the stories that we tell are real. Uh, we believe that us sharing real stories with each other is the thing that helps us with empathy and community building and really seeing each other as the full, complete human beings that we are walking through the world. So that's why we spend so much time crafting them and s performing them and listening to them. So thank you for being here tonight. Our second storyteller of the evening, uh, her name is Latanya Lane. Please welcome her to the microphone. I don't have a great memory for dates, but there are a couple that stand out for me. 
obvious ones, like the May afternoon in 2008 when, with labored breath, I forced myself to look at the circular analog clock hanging on the wall opposite me. I deliberately took note of the short hand, the long hand, the seconds hand, forced myself to make meaning of their positions. As my sister stood behind me, stroking my back, and my then husband stood at my knee, chanting, here he comes, here he comes. And the midwife stood in front of me saying, Tanya, stop, no, no pushing, Tanya, no, oh, 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 okay. During all of that, it felt immensely important to know that at exactly 1.57 in the afternoon, my son entered the world. And then there are dates that you don't realize you'll remember, like that perfect July evening I was leaving the Taste of Chicago with my friend Chaka. We'd gone to Taste as an excuse to wear something pretty, pay too much for samples, and catch up on one another's lives. I'd chosen a dress I rarely wear. It was a seafoam number made for the beach. I enjoyed the weight of the skirt against my legs as we walked. The swish of the fabric gave me the feeling that with the right wind, the skirt could double as a light, airy balloon. After crossing to Michigan Avenue, I took a moment to appreciate how perfect the night was. Warm, dark, and the best sounds of the city everywhere. Conversation punctuated with laughter, a talented musician playing, isn't she lovely, on the saxophone. Chaka was checking her phone as we walked, the screen's light illuminating her face when suddenly she stopped. Wait, she said. I looked at her as she read, scrolled, and then looked at me. Zimmerman got acquitted, she said. I shook my head, what? Surely she wasn't, she was talking about another Zimmerman. We couldn't be talking about the Zimmerman who, ignoring police instructions, followed a kid home, and then fought that kid, and then murdered that kid in the street. Surely we weren't talking about that Zimmerman. Yeah, she said, the verdict just came in. The world tilted. I felt my chest tighten and something at the bottom of my heart break. I sat down on the sidewalk, my perfect summer dress spread out about me, deflated. Chaka's mouth turned down as she looked at me. Are you okay? I tried to force air into my lungs, but it was work. And suddenly I felt so very tired. I nodded and shook my head. She sat down with me for a while, and though we eventually left, in a lot of ways, I never got up from that sidewalk. Seven years after that May afternoon, and just two years after that July evening, I stood in my apartment. It was a tiny number with five rooms. The kitchen and living room split evenly between one another. The stove caddy corner to the wall where the couch sat. I stood in the kitchen with my back to the stove where I could see into every room and assess the level of filth. Laundry spilled out of the hamper in my room, dishes filled both sinks, 
I couldn't identify where all the stains on the stove had come from and something sticky was on my foot from the floor. I could put it off no longer. The time had come to clean. Just as I was finding a playlist to support me in my least favorite activity, my son emerged from behind his grape-colored bedroom door holding Candyland. He came out of his room and stood in front of me wearing gray gym shorts, a t-shirt, and his Spider-Man slippers. His curly hair added three inches to his height, but he still only came up to my rib cage. Let's play a game, he said. A game sounded fun and might have been a good idea since we were in the middle of winter and cooped up in our tiny apartment, but the mess was winning and definitely needed my attention more than the cotton candy princess. So I said, I can't play a board game with you now. I need to clean, but I'll play with you later. I put on my headphones and scrolled through my playlist to decide which Sasha Fierce number would usher me into cleaning. But before I could tap play, he lost it. He started screaming, you're just on your phone. You're never going to play with me. The illogic of this statement irritated me, but it was the screaming I couldn't abide. Look, I said, don't yell. You can play with your toys or go watch a movie or by all means, help me clean. But cleaning has to happen right now. No board games. This is where he decided to grab and kick and hit me. Hit me. My mind blanked and I had an immediate urge to strike. I resisted the impulse and instead asked myself, okay, what else can I do? What else, what else? Call someone, yes, call someone. Someone to talk him down or talk me down. I called my sister, no answer. I called my dad, no answer. My brother, my mother, two close friends, no answer. I took a deep breath. You cannot hit me, I said. He raised his hand and hit me again. Y'all. <laughs> the whole thing felt like a challenge, like an old Western showdown, like Everyone in the saloon is laughing it up and having a good old time until baby fast fingers smacks mommy the law. <laughs> All the music stops, the laughter stops, and everyone watches wondering what's going to happen now because something has to happen. Light-skinned as he is, my baby is still too brown to be hitting authority figures. The defiance guiding my son's hand that night is a defiance that could get him labeled as troubled at school, insubordinate at work, or resisting arrest at a traffic stop. That he didn't know that terrified me. As a child, I remember feeling my parents were overzealous with their spankings. I'm not a bad kid, I would think. Now, as a parent, I understand their discipline was less about goodness and more about fear, mine and theirs. Their fear sat like thick clouds over our lives, sometimes erupting into violent rains. And whether it drowned us or helped our lives to take root, I don't know. 
But I do know that part of parenting me had to involve teaching me the fear of living black in this country. And their fear of being black in this country drove their strict management of my behavior. It didn't matter whether the infraction was real or perceived. It didn't matter the motivation of my actions, whether curiosity, mistake, or malice. What mattered was I learned the code of acceptable behavior and learned to perform it reflexively because a step out of line, perceived or real, was a step towards a pain they didn't wield and couldn't control. And since that July evening, so much of what I'd see on the news was images of black suffering and death. Videos of a child and her desk being flipped over and slammed into the floor by a security officer because she refused to give up her cell phone. Videos of a full-grown officer wrestling a bikini-clad girl to the sidewalk because a neighbor was concerned about the black children who showed up at a pool party. Videos of a 12-year-old boy shot within seconds of a police officer's arrival as he played in the park with his sister. My parents' fear, inscrutable to me as a child, made so much sense then. Aren't the lessons of pain best learned from a hand that loves you than a hand that doesn't? Isn't it better that my son learned these lessons from me, who loves him most, rather than from the hands of a system who cares not at wit? Looking into the angry question in my son's eyes, I felt like I was back on that sidewalk, unable to breathe and powerless against this mean, violent thing in the world and feeling so very tired. I felt the kitchen stove against my back and leaned into a, it a little. I thought about my choices. I still didn't know what to do. So I made the round of phone calls again. Again, no answer. My son kept screaming at me and I felt tears of frustration gather in my eyes. I was at a loss when I noticed the Google Chrome app on my phone. I tapped on it. I searched seven-year-old tantrum, hitting parrot, search. <laughs> I found an article. Children feel big emotions and don't always know how to let them out so they can quickly jump to anger. Ask your child if they were feeling sad about something that happened earlier. Article, you crazy. He's not listening to anything I say. Ask you? <sighs> Are you feeling sad that we couldn't play board games? <laughs> he immediately stopped screaming. Yes. Okay. Now, tell him it's okay to feel sad and he can cry if he wants to. He knows he can cry. Do you even know what you're talking about? Do you want my help or not? <sighs> it is okay to feel sad. You can cry if you want. <laughs> he dissolved into a puddle of tears. The risk of my choice to not spank is not lost on me. The argument for beating respectable behavior into black children gets deployed from all corners. It's a logic that's alluring. It's a logic that says your silence, your smile, your willful compliance in your own destruction will totally save you. If you just pull up your pants, talk right, don't wear your hair funny, 
and protest politely. If you do everything just right, when your car stalls in the middle of the road and you get out of the car with your hands in the air, they'll see how respectable you are and you'll be able to get back in the car with your sister and let her know the tow truck is on the way. Unless, because of the color of your skin, you're seen as a big bad dude instead of someone in need of help. During this time of protest and unrest, I often feel like I'm sitting on the sidelines, and a lot of that is because of momming. All of my extra time is spent doing homework, planning meals, managing emotions, and keeping everyone on schedule. Despite my interest in making change in the world, with the exception of maybe a personal invitation from the Obamas to play spades, <laughs> 8.30 bedtime is law in my home. My heart breaks at every new video I can't watch of a black body crumpling to the ground as state purchase bullets rip through flesh. And I hate that the best I can do these days is post an article on my Facebook feed. But sitting on the floor, not hitting my son, felt like a moment, however brief, I could show him that in our house, the fear of state-sanctioned violence didn't call the shots and didn't justify putting hands on him. Not laying hands on my son felt like a way to get up from that sidewalk and walk forward. Not letting the fear of what this country might do to him drive my, act drive my hand felt like a way to say, your emotions, your frustrations, your curiosities, your successes, your mistakes, and even, baby, even your malice, the entirety of your whole beautiful black life deeply, deeply matters. Listen up, everybody, the bottom line. I'm a black intellect, but I'm refined. Precision like the bullet, target bound. Just living like a hookup, the harlot sounds. Now, when I say the harlot, you know I need the hot. All right, all right. Um, so uh, before this um, performance, before there were other stories, we were having a conversation. Uh, and before I say that, I would just like to say thank you both for your stories. Um, we were talking about like what what do we want to add to this conversation? What we want to talk about in this portion? And I had offered that um, talking about the intersection of art and politics and citizenship and parenting uh, and even that idea of like why personal stories like why do personal stories matter? What do they accomplish that other things don't? Um, so that is our big container of a question. Uh, and so those are some, th some of the things we we're talking about earlier. And you said uh, you were thinking about kind of why this story, why now it feels weird to be talking about this story when there's so many other things to be talking about in the world. Yeah, I have felt since the election that like we must speak of nothing but the election. Um, and the reality, you know, what's funny about that is that I'm an activist and a community organizer, and most of my work continues the same under all of the presidents we've had. Um, so uh, it, the reality of my life feels not that different, and yet I feel like it's it feels weird to tell a story about having a miscarriage when we are in this huge political crisis. Um, so I felt kind of weird about it. Yeah, and I had pointed out that um, 
in some ways to me it all feels germane right because you had to jump through some hurdles that if you were in a heterosexual partnership you wouldn't have to jump through and depending on how things go that those not only the biological hurdles that you're thinking about but that actually the logistical hurdles might get bigger and bigger and what does that mean in society right and how do we how can we use personal stories to get folks who might not have that experience to to cue into the fact that it still affects people yeah, you know, one of the things I used to do back in the day when I was trying to get pregnant those 17 times with my first daughter is that I was weirdly on this like Christian college speaking tour where I was doing my solo show about trying to get pregnant um, and being queer at Christian colleges because there's always like some gay person who's like, I need to get some more gay people in here. And so many people would come out to me after my performance and my talk and they would be like, I don't believe in your lifestyle, but I'm praying for you to get your baby. And I'm like, wow, there's a real, this, you know, they're like, they can't decide how they feel. They're like, I like this lady. She's a sinner. But, yeah. you know, and I, I do think that like creating those moments where we can try to speak to each other across divides, you know, like I'm thinking about, I don't hit my child either, um, partly because my parents hit me so often. And yet, I don't have any of the anxieties parenting a white presenting half Mexican daughter that you do have parenting your son. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, I think, so I think I, I always want him to come stand with me. Um, I am darker than my child. Um, and so, hi. Uh, <laughs> and so, um, so when I'm having this conversation with cousins and when I'm, you know, I feel like it's just very complicated and also still a, a worry that I have. Um, and I think it's important um, for me, the stories that I try to tell with Second Story um, are about those moments of fear because I feel like there are these larger narratives about what fear excuses um, especially in terms of Black Lives Matter, like that's always the excuse of I was in fear of my life, I was in fear of my life. And so that kind of, you know, just grants, so, so I can disregard this person because I was afraid. Um, and so I think there are ways that, that that story gets told is that's the only way you can respond to a scary thing. Um, and I, I think those personal moments where we find ourselves afraid, um, are also moments that we can we can remember what's important to us and figure out how, how to move that forward. And so I think those personal narratives can can kind of push back at those larger ones of like, what does it mean, what do we do when we're afraid? And um, does it always have to be violence? Does it always have to be this, this mean, violent thing? Or can it be something else um, that kind of invites life in? Sure. I think one of the things that uh, I really love about Second Story is that we tend to do performances in places like bars and restaurants, and because of that time in between stories, there's so much opportunity for an audience member to come up to a storyteller afterwards and say, that happened to me too, right? Or it really touched me when this happened or when you said this. And many years ago, we used to kind of dabble with fiction a little bit, actually. And uh, one of the big conversations that we had was around, there was a woman uh, who told a story about being uh, molested by her grandfather. And she had that experience where multiple people came up to her afterwards. And like, I'm so th grateful that you, s I'm s I feel such shame about my experience. So it was so wonderful to hear you share yours. Uh, and we realized in that moment that 
if that if that story if she had fictionalized that at all and somebody had come up to her afterwards and said that happened to me too and she said oh i made that up right like what a what a break of the contract between the the teller and the audience so um so we call our stories real right we'll do some um like folding of characters together or uh the story happened in Detroit, but we're going to set it in Chicago for whatever reason. But it's all real stories that actually happened to the person. So there can be that moment of, wow, that really touched me. Right. So I'm curious, are there times when you've told a story, this story or a different story, when somebody has come up to you and shared a personal story in response? Yes. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, I. The last story I told with... Um, second story was about um, a psychotic break my ex had um, and how that was a moment that I realized this this thing that was happening between us was a little bigger than between us and it um, you know there are stories that are hard to tell and that one was hard to tell Um, but afterwards there was someone who came up and and just things that I had been trying to work through when trying to get it on the page and you know go okay first this then that then that and also all the feelings. Um, but someone who who had a close friend who had a psychotic break and um, kind of shared a little bit about that experience um, to kind of just be like, me too. Um, and it was, it was this lovely moment of just feeling understood, even having gone through the, the process of writing and, and editing, but having someone saying like, yeah, and you feel like there are ways you can fix it. And like, I felt that too. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can't, it, it was a, yeah, it was a really nice moment. Is, has that happened for you? Well, I was thinking actually with telling this story that I, I just told, I d- actually never talked about the miscarriage because in the couple days after it happened, Nobody said anything right. And I think there probably wasn't a right thing to say, but I remember like my one of my brothers saying, like, well, at least you can drink at your party now. And I'm like, uh, I will trade all the alcohol in the world, mm-hmm. you know, or, or people would just be like, well, you could try again, like starting tomorrow, right? I'm like, that is not how a uterus <laughs> works, you know? <laughs> and like, um, it, I, just, so I just stopped talking about it and I, I retreated into this like really deep hole. But it happens to so many women, and I feel like it's not the kind of thing we're allowed to talk about. Yeah. I don't know. It 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 feels like um, uh, this like very common pain. So many people go through it, and since I've started, you know, with telling this story, I thought it was going to be like a funny story about how. Um, weird my gym was you know and that there was like an afterthought that I'd gone after the miscarriage I'm like no but this guy punched me in the face you know and as we were doing the story processing I was like okay that's actually not the story at all I'm like dealing with some really I haven't worked out my feelings and since I told the story here I have felt like it's so important to just acknowledge as part of my life story that like you know because people are like well are you gonna have another kid and I'm like I doubt it, mm. you know, and um, the more I'm out about it, the more people share their stories about also having gone through it and also never talking to anyone about it because people don't know what to say. Yeah, that's so true about so many things, right? When people die and people don't really know what to say or you have a terminal illness or a chronic illness, right? And how do we hold space for that and honor that uh, and yet also um, 
kind of be there for that person in the way that they want to be be there for. Is that a phrase? I don't know. Um, but every now and again, I've heard um, the idea that the golden rule kind of ruined it for all of us, right? Because we say do unto others as you want them to do unto you. But really, no, it's do unto others as they want you to do unto them, right? Right. Um, because some people might, like, if I'm grieving, I might want to hug, and somebody else might be grieving and be like, don't fucking touch me, right? Right. Uh, so it's not about treating people how I want to be treated necessarily so much as is honoring how they want to be treated. You mentioned the process, and I know that this story went through some yeah. real iterations when you were working on it. Would you talk a little bit about kind of how you entered into it and what it turned into in 15 seconds because the lights just went out? Oh, that, is that our flash? That's the flash. Okay, great. Yes, so we have five minutes. Um, so mine was similar to yours. I thought it was a funny story about, like, when I wanted to, you know, beat the black off my child, and then didn't. Um, <laughs> um, and so then, but it, it, yeah, I really appreciated the process. It, there was a, I think there were more drafts of this story than uh, a lot of stories I've written, and um, there was like a family history draft where it was like, this is the oldest story I know in my family of, um, of violence against children. Um, and then, and so there's, you know, the, the, the curator who sits with you, there's like a couple of folks who are telling with you and then someone who's kind of listening for the truth in the draft. And, um, uh, the woman who was working with our set of stories kept being like, it feels like there's something you're trying to say that you're just not saying yet. And I was like, right, but can we just call it, isn't this kind of <laughs> fine? And, um, it just kept niggling and niggling. And so I was... I mean, I think there were two nights where I was up in the middle of the night, just like, maybe this, maybe this. Um, but I just, yeah, I, it's it's the thing of like, this didn't happen to me, right? Like I'm, I did not know about Trayvon Martin. I did not, this is not a person I knew. And there were ways in which, like I just, I don't have a great memory for dates. And I remember that one so vividly. Mm. And there was this way that it reset. And I, it was a story I wasn't letting myself tell or acknowledge. And so the process of having someone who, um, I don't think Rushmi knew that's where I was trying to go with this story, but she had the good sense to be like, it's you're doing something, but you're not doing it all the way. Go. Yeah, that's happened a lot. with So the second story, we have about a four-month process that stories go through before they're performed. Uh, and one of our values is craft. We believe that well-crafted stories are more effective, that well-crafted stories land with a larger percentage of audience members and do more work um, than a story that we just kind of like whip up and do. Um, I'm sure there are people who can whip up and do them real well, but that's not really where we are. Um, but that idea that like you're kind of dancing around a story, right, and that the outside eye can help I love that you just said, I wrote this down, listening for the truth in the draft, right? That it's not about the outside eye telling you what your story is about, but rather reflecting back to you what, you're, what you are telling us, right? Um, and there are lots of times that we have had that experience where I remember there was a teller who we were working with, I was working with, um, who was talking about this first kiss that he had. Uh, and like to be totally frank, it just was not a very compelling story. And I was like, why do you want to tell this story so bad? Like, why is it so important to you? I don't understand why it's important. Uh, and he was like, well, um, it was the first time that I had touched another person since I had been molested by my cousin. And I was like, okay, well, that's not there, right? 
And so part of your, like you don't have to tell that story if you don't want to tell that story, but part of the, the work is telling a story that has layers to it, right? That has meaning to it. Um, and that can take a lot of time and craft and bravery. That's it, folks. Um, <laughs> thank you so much for being here. Uh, we are Second Story. Uh, we do have live performances all over the place, so please come check us out. Um, otherwise, please come talk to us. We love to talk to people after shows. So thank you so much. Um, peace and story power, as we say. Thank you.